0: Acts 28 today, 16 through 31. By the Lord's mercy, we will conclude this series today. Let's pray. Our prayers come before you this morning, Father, and there is no better place for them to be. Uh, We know to whom we have made our requests and we are grateful that they are before You. And so we implore You this day that You would give us understanding according to Your Word and sanctify us in Your truth. Your Word is truth. Sustain us, we pray, and strengthen us as Your servants to do Your will and deliver us from the evil one. And bring us at the end to Your eternal presence by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Acts twenty-eight, sixteen through 31 Remember, Paul has been on a long, arduous, painful journey to Rome, and they have finally arrived by God's grace in accordance with His promise. Luke tells us here, Beginning in verse 16. And when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, I though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. We desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers, and from the morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Amen. This is God's Word. This last episode in Acts is a bit... Uh, unusual perhaps unexpected because it doesn't answer all of the questions that we have or it doesn't follow the the narrative lines that we wanted to Um, what happens to Paul in this trial this long saga of a trial that's been devoted to the end of acts for so long what happens Um, what is the church of Rome like what are the effects of Paul's evangelism in Rome And instead, this last episode is devoted to one last run-in with the hard-hearted Jews. Paul rebuking them, and then turning yet again to the Gentiles. Why is the ending of this book so seemingly abrupt, when it seems that Luke has been so intentional and thoughtful throughout his book? Some suggest that Luke wrote before the end of the story was completed. Um, Others suggest that to conclude with the death of Paul would be too negative. But I'm persuaded that Luke concludes exactly the way he wants to. So I want to spend a little time here at the beginning, summarizing the book as this is the last message um, in Acts for us. And we'll see, I think, why Luke ends the way he does when we understand the context of the book, or have that in view. So Acts, or Luke Acts, goes together as a history written by Luke. But it's not just a history. It's a theological history. The Holy Spirit has, through Luke, inspired various constructs and conclusions that are hardwired into the book that we're meant to see and understand. There's theological uh, history here. And we can remember, if we go back to how Luke began his narrative, all the way back in Luke 1, 1 through 1-4, Luke says, And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word and have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. So there's the history part. I want to write an orderly account for you of all the things that have happened. But then he goes on, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty Concerning the things you have been taught. So there's a theological purpose behind the history hardwired into the book. Theophilus, it's reasonable to deduce, was a high ranking official, perhaps a Roman official. And Luke and Acts are designed to give him confidence about the things he's been taught. Confidence, um, and this is an apologetic for confidence, to believe in Jesus really is the, the simple way to put it. And we see emphasized throughout this book that Christianity is the way. Christianity is the way, and it's the only way. Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Jewish Messiah. And that also we see that that Christianity is not um, a rabble-rousing threat to society, but is actually, um, despite enduring much abuse from the world, patiently speaking the gospel of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ into the world. The book of Acts is often called the Acts of the Apostles. That's why it's called Acts. But people have suggested it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And I am as convinced now as, as when I said it in the first sermon that I think that the title should be something like, and though it doesn't roll off the tongue as nicely, the ongoing acts of the heavenly ministry of Jesus Christ. Acts is the story of the king and his beloved kingdom. Acts shows how Jesus of Nazareth serves his office as Messiah and promised Davidic king as he sits at his father's right hand. So in the very beginning of the book, the book of Acts opens with the ascension of Jesus Christ And this is not an event in which Jesus merely floats away into the sky to to wait for us to all figure it out until he comes back someday. Rather, the the ascension is a coronation. It's his uh, ascension to the Ancient of Days, as it says in Daniel. This is having completed his mission, he's going to his... The, the Davidic throne at the Father's right hand to take charge of the kingdom of God while His enemies are steadily put under His feet. Time and again, time again throughout the story of Acts, His enemies try to thwart the expansion of His kingdom. And time and time again, Jesus crushes the enemy. Um, I've often used the illustration throughout this series that I began to call, in my mind at least, The judo principle, judo being you use your enemy's strength against them. Every time the devil tries to do something against the kingdom, he falls flat on his face and Jesus is victorious over him. Just a few examples. You remember when Stephen was martyred and the Sanhedrin begins to to persecute the church violently. And what happens? They're trying to kick the fire out and they instead kick the coals far and wide and the gospel spreads spreads farther and faster. Or Paul, Paul terrorizing the church, and Jesus converts him to Christianity. Or even when when a great tempest blew them halfway across the Mediterranean, it results in in the power of God fulfilling His promise being shown. So we're convinced through the book of Acts We have confidence through reading the book of Acts that Christ is ruling and reigning the whole time despite the adversity that comes against the church. And he's steadily causing his kingdom to expand by the power of the Holy Spirit through his word ministered by weak vessels from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And Christ's kingdom expands as the church grows on account of the success of the word. There are seven summary statements in the book of Acts. That give us a sense of how uh, the gospel is going out into the world. Uh, beginning in Acts 2.47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And in 6.7 the word of the Lord continued to increase And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. In 9.31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And in 12.24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. 16.5, 16.5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. In 19.20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And then this last one we will cover in a little bit is the very last summary statement in Acts. But you see through these summary statements, the way the kingdom is expanding is through the growth of the church by the power of the word of the gospel. So I think we could summarize the story of Acts um, in a very broad sense in this way by saying that it is the story of the promised king expanding his reign from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth by the power of the Holy Spirit through the ministry of his word by his people. In light of this purpose, then this this reason for the book of Acts, I think Luke's ending makes a lot of sense as though perhaps it were inspired by the word of God himself. So let's look at this story. Then Uh, we ended last week with Paul at long last through many trials, finally arriving in Rome. Um, Jesus had appeared to him in a vision all the way back in, in Jerusalem, at least two and a half years prior. Um, in chapter twenty-three, eleven, Jesus said to Paul, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And now here he is at long last. And he sets about this task that Jesus has given to him of testifying to him uh, quite quickly. After three days, he calls the Jews to himself. And it's no surprise where he starts, because where does Paul always start? At the synagogues with the Jews, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Of course, this one's a little different because it appears he's under house arrest, so he can't go to the synagogue, so he calls the Jewish synagogue leaders to himself. And this is, to me, just extraordinary after all the Jews have put him through. Paul still wants to bring the gospel to his own people, to his countrymen, to whom, as as Romans 9 says, belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and from whom is their race is the Christ. He wants his countrymen, the Jews, to know Christ despite all their abuse toward him. He opens his address even to them in verse 17. Brothers. Brothers. He sees himself as one of them, as a Jew, pleading to fellow Jews to open their eyes and to unstop their ears and to hear the good news of the arrival of the kingdom of their Christ. And they say... Okay, thank you for calling us to you, Paul. And our curiosity is piqued. But why are you chained to that Roman soldier? Essentially, Paul has to kind of explain what he's doing here. And he explains why he is in Rome and why he's imprisoned. And he's there because the Jews in Jerusalem had delivered him into the hands of the Romans. And at first glance, reading the story, we might say, Well, no, the the Romans arrested him and protected him from the Jews. But if we remember all the way back, Agabus, the prophet, had prophesied with the same kind of language. And if we think back to when Paul was originally arrested, um, had Paul actually brought a Gentile into the temple as, as he was accused, they would have had a right to prosecute and execute him by themselves. But as it is, they're reduced to kind of trying to manipulate the Roman courts. So the very fact that Paul is in Roman custody at all and not stoned and buried two and a half years ago is a testament to his innocence. This is something he affirms in 17. I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers. He says even the Roman officials in 18 affirmed Paul's innocence before the Roman state. He had nothing, done nothing against the Roman state to deserve the death penalty, he says. And, and they even wanted to let him go, but that Felix and Festus are politicians, and they have to cover their own rear end, and they want to do the Jews a favor, and so they keep Paul in prison. And he spends two whole years in prison with no realistic hope of being set free and a very real possibility of being put to death as a favor. And so his only real recourse is to appeal to Caesar, which explains his present situation, why he wears a chain, why he's in this sort of minimum security program, and why he's called them together. He wants them also to understand, in verse 19, that he's not there to level accusations against the nation of Israel. He's there because there was no other choice. Then he answers the question, why are they there? Why did he call the Jews to himself? In short, it's because he loves them and he wants to tell them about Jesus. He says his bondage is a direct result of the hope of their shared Jewish heritage. And he wants to tell them about it. He he wants them to know the thing that you have been longing for, the thing you have been waiting for, the hope of Israel, the fulfillment of the promise is here in the person and work of Jesus. And so they say in, in 21, Okay, we've heard your sect is broadly hated by the Jews, but we haven't had any letters or anybody come to us and say anything about you, Paul. And so let's hear the views from the horse's mouth. What do you have to say? And so they make an appointment, they come back with more numbers, and they listen to Paul, and it says, Luke says that he, from morning to evening, spoke with them, testifying, expounding, and convincing about Jesus. Those are the three verbs that are used there. He's testifying, expounding, and convincing. And he's working from the scriptures, Luke says, from the law of Moses and the prophets. He's urgently trying to convince them that the hope of Israel has arrived in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what is this hope? This hope of Israel well, that's, that's really a rather broad topic. In one sense, we could say it's everything that had been promised to the nation of Israel. Um, that God would be their God and He would be their people. That there would be one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. Or that there would be a holy nation established and from which kings would arise. That the nation would be a blessing to the nations. Or that a prophet like Moses would arise. Or that the Davidic king would come and sit on his throne of his father David. And that the nations would stream to Zion. In short, everything that has been promised to Israel is the hope of Israel. And this is why he says in 23, He expounded to them from the law of Moses and the prophets. It's like when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus and he told them about himself from the scriptures. Luke describes this explication of the fulfillment of the the hope of Israel here in two ways. First, he's testifying to the kingdom of God. And second, he's trying to convince them about Jesus. And it's actually important that we don't see those as two separate things, the kingdom of God and Jesus. We cannot have one of those things without the other. The establishment of the eternal kingdom of God cannot be isolated or separated from its king, from Jesus. Calvin says here helpfully, uh, whereby we ought also to be taught that no man hopes aright but that he looks unto Christ and his spiritual kingdom. For when he, Luke, places the hope of the godly in Christ, he excludes all other hopes. So we don't have any hope without Christ. And again, this is a theme throughout Acts from the very beginning of, uh, of Luke and Acts. Um, all the way back in Luke one thirty two through 32-33, when the Ab- uh, angel Gabriel tells Mary about Jesus coming, he says, And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So these Jews, these Roman Jews... And Paul had based their hope in these same set of promises. But the Jews are still waiting for them to come and Paul's saying they've already come in the person of Jesus. And this person, Jesus, is the one in whom all of God's promises are yes and amen. So he's urging them, please come, believe, put your trust in your Messiah. Your hope is here And if you are his sheep, you will hear his voice. This is a great reminder for us how easy it is for us to divorce our hope from Christ and his kingdom. How quickly our our hope turns to other desires rather than God's promises fulfilled by Christ. All of our eggs must be in this one basket, our our eggs of hope. Because if our hopes are all tied up in in anything, in material prosperity, in relationships, in in things that we perceive to be success, in being well-liked, in meeting even the daily needs of our families, in our national or ethnic identities... In princes or rulers or militaries or in anything other than Christ and His kingdom, our hope is misplaced. And that's why Jesus reminds us in Matthew 6 seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, at this point, we're Acts veterans, so even without reading, we could predict how the Jews would respond. In verse 24, a few were convinced, but many did not believe. Luke says that they left, the Jews left that place, disagreeing among themselves. And I can just kind of picture them walking out the door down the streets, arguing back and forth with one another. And on one level, it's kind of like, what what, what a great gospel success that is, just embroiling them in controversy. Wouldn't we want instead to see unity promoted and all of them converted and all the the Roman Jews converted to Christ? But we have to remember that the word of the gospel is not for salvation only, but it also serves to harden and condemn. The gospel will inevitably bring division. As some people are are regenerated and transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. They will no longer be in league with the world and they'll be in opposition to the world and there will be contention. Interesting here, Luke tells us that it was actually Paul's own words that caused the controversy or actually just him quoting scripture. Paul references Isaiah 6, uh, attributing it to the Holy Spirit. Luke says, They departed after Paul had made this one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have closed. They should see with their ears, at least they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. I'm reminded here of Stephen's last words before he was stoned in Acts 7, 51-53 where he he cries out, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. This is a theme, a theme throughout the scriptures, that the Jews continue to be hardened against God and his Messiah. And I really, I wrestled with, what is Luke's point in emphasizing here, the hardness of Israel's heart? And really, commentators wrestle with this as well. Some who want to say, you know, but, but don't, don't say Israel's done with, right? And then uh, other people are, are willing to say that. But that's not the point of Luke at all here in this passage. But what is the point of emphasizing this so strongly? Because the last story in the narrative, the conclusion of the story, is a place of prominence and em- emphasis, Again, we'd want to hear Paul's story of his court battle with, in Nero's courts, but instead we have this argument with the Jews. Why is this emphasized? And again, only a few chapters ago, Luke had, left, had Paul leaving Jerusalem on a Roman horse with, with the Jewish leaders frothing mad and rebellion against their own Messiah. So why so much emphasis on this? I think on the one hand, we can take a step back and look at it from a a broader overall New Testament programmatic point of view. Because if you notice in Isaiah 6, um, it expresses God's program, God's plan. God is the one who commands Isaiah to preach that their future hardness of heart will occur and that they'll have closed eyes and dull hearing. And he says, God says he does not want them to turn and be healed. So this is all God's plan. At the same time, we're also told in Isaiah 6 that it is, is their own doing. He says, they have closed their eyes. So this bigger picture program is explained for us in Ephesians, in Romans chapter 11 and places like that, that the mystery has been revealed, that the dividing wall has been torn down. And we who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ and that a temporary hardening has come on Israel while the Gentiles come in. I think that broadly explains some of the big picture why this is going on. But in Acts, while those themes are definitely there, I think the emphasis is less on the why and more on the who. Luke wants to emphasize Jesus, that Jesus is the way. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the point at which Christianity and Judaism diverge and Christianity becomes the branch through which redemptive history will flow. And that it is by faith in the name of Jesus alone that we obtain all that has been promised. There's this hard line drawn in Acts. If, if you remain hardened, entrenched in your traditions and you do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, you are not the people of God. You are not a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Christ's kingdom is not confined to to a particular geographical or ethical boundary. Um, If those people who are rightful heirs Jews who are rightful heirs of the covenant promises will not listen then he will build a kingdom of priests and a holy nation from the nations from the gentiles and that's what he says in 28 therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of god has been sent to the gentiles they will listen and of course some Jews listen there's a remnant of Jews that listen and of course not all gentiles uh, do listen, but there's a change in program here, a shift to the, a focus on the Gentiles. And indeed, this is what the conclusion of the book suggests that Paul spent two whole years in Rome ministering the gospel to the Gentiles. In 30, he lived there two whole years at his own expense probably on house arrest, paying his own expenses, rent, and welcoming all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's the final summary statement. And that's why it makes so much sense, because that's the point of the book of Acts, is that the gospel goes out to the nations. The word of Christ, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what happens to Paul, but there's fairly reliable tradition um, from some biblical cues and some extra-biblical sources, that Paul's trial actually had a, a relatively positive outcome. Um, that is, either two years was kind of the limit for the trial and it expired, or probably more likely he had a trial with Nero or, or somebody um a Representative of Nero, and he was cleared of wrongdoing and some sources even suggest that Paul may have even taken an, another missionary trip to the West to visit the churches in the West, like Ephesus and so forth and there 's a bit of a a biblical cue for this in second Timothy four sixteen and seventeen when Paul, at the very end of his life, is writing to Timothy, and he says. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. And that probably means his first defense in in Nero's courts. But he says, all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So again, just like in Jerusalem, he had another opportunity in Rome to proclaim before high-ranking officials the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says then, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Now, the lion's mouth may be a reference to Nero, uh, kind of personified as a lion, or it may just be a reference to to escape from danger. there. But um, either way, it's it suggested that that Paul had a fairly positive outcome for his trial. But then by by the year 64, um, Nero had become fully insane. And he hated Christians. And there was this big fire in Rome that decimated Rome. And possibly even Nero himself lit the fire. And uh, Nero blamed the Christians. And there was a great persecution against Christians. And it was probably during this time that uh, Peter was crucified, um, upside down and that um, Paul was beheaded by the sword. But Luke does not include any of this, because he concludes his book exactly how he intends, with the victory of the progress of the word of the gospel to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles, and to the Romans of all people. So he says, he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen.